Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, I tell you, this is going to be an interesting conversation for me because I have the privilege of talking with one of my very best friends in all the world who also happens to be my own biological son. That's right, Dr. Christian Timothy George. Christian, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, I've known you as long as you've been alive, and I've seen how you've grown and developed in wonderful ways. Uh, tell us a little bit about your own uh, background, and then we'll get to the main focus of this podcast, which is your, your work on Charles Haddon Spurgeon. As you know, I was, uh, I was born in Louisville, you remember? I do. And uh, <laughs> uh, grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. I went to Briarwood Presbyterian uh, School there, and I attended Sanford. I was a, an art major and a religion minor. And then I attended Beeson, my Master of Divinity. Uh, married my wife uh, in college, and we were praying about where to go to school uh, for doctoral work. And we went across the ocean to St. Andrews, the University of St. Andrews, where I studied uh, the great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and particularly uh, his Christology. Worked with Dr. Stephen Holmes there at St. Andrews. That's exactly right, yes. Uh, after St. Andrews, I was hired as an assistant professor of historical theology at Oklahoma Baptist University. So we lived in Oklahoma, in Shawnee, Oklahoma, for three very wonderful years. And then I was hired uh, to be the curator of the Charles Spurgeon Library uh, and also to teach church history at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And that's in Kansas City. In Kansas City. Go Royals. Yeah, y'all have a great baseball team this year. Yeah, won the World Series. That's true. Pretty good. That's true. Well, now... Um, I, I suppose there isn't a single listener to this Beeson podcast who has not heard of Charles Haddon Spurgeon and probably know a little bit about him. But you just suppose there's somebody listening. They've never heard Spurgeon's name before. Who is this Charles Haddon Spurgeon? Hmm. Well, it's a good question, and I get asked that actually quite a lot. Uh, even though Spurgeon is the most quoted pastor probably in pulpits in America, uh, he still does need to be rediscovered by many people. Uh, Charles Spurgeon... Uh, was a 19th century Baptist preacher and pastor. Uh, he was someone that you just have to put into the category of George Whitfield and maybe Martin Luther. He was one of the greatest evangelicals, one of the greatest Baptists, one of the greatest uh, preachers in the English tradition. Uh, Charles Spurgeon published more words in English than any Christian in history. Uh, he founded 66 uh, parachurch uh, organizations there in London. Uh, and wore many hats. He was a preacher. He was a president of a theological institution. Uh, he was an outspoken abolitionist, friends with Frederick Douglass and others. Uh, and he's just someone who contributed largely uh, to the evangelical tradition. Now, you mentioned that you're the curator of the Spurgeon Library at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City. Tell us about this library. How did it come to be at uh, Midwestern in Kansas City? Yes, Spurgeon never visited there, did he? He never visited Kansas City. He might have stayed, had he? <laughs> uh, in 1905, uh, Spurgeon's twin sons, Thomas and Charles, sold their father's library, his personal library of about 6,000 volumes, to the Missouri Baptist Association. Uh, it was put on the USS Cuba, and it was shipped uh, from Southampton to New Orleans. It was put on a train, and it was delivered to Kansas City 
From there, it went about 15 miles northeast to a little town called Liberty, Missouri, where it was housed for exactly one century at William Jewell College. In 2006, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary purchased the collection uh, in a blind auction with some other schools. Last year, I was hired by Dr. Jason Allen, the president of Midwestern, to come and, and start this Spurgeon Library, this center that will house the collection, that will preserve it for posterity, uh, and also be u- useful to scholars ar- around the world. So you actually have 6,000 of Spurgeon's own books from his personal library, and you've developed this into a research institute, right, where people can come and study Spurgeon and learn more about his life and context and his theology. That's right, and many of the books are marked up, so Spurgeon annotated some of them quite heavily. And uh, all of that needs to be analyzed and, and uh, studied uh, because it's really an untapped source of scholarship to help us understand Spurgeon better. And so to talk a little bit more about the purpose of the, the library. It's a research institute, but you also have a, a concern for reaching out to churches and pastors and promoting the work of evangelism and ministry, don't you? Yeah, so the, the name of the library is the Charles Spurgeon Library for Biblical Preaching. And so we're interested uh, in not only appealing to the church, uh, to the scholars, but also to God's people in the church. Uh, And so we have pastors come uh, with their uh, congregations. We give tours. Uh, You know, the more people know about Spurgeon, the more people know about Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, Spurgeon is always pointing others to Christ. And my heart has been the whole time I've been in Kansas City, not to just look to Spurgeon, but look through Spurgeon to Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's great. Well, uh, I I wish you would say a little bit more about your own work on Spurgeon, your scholarly work, and in particular, this uh, project that you are bringing together on the lost sermons of C.H. Spurgeon. Now, when I first see that title, I wonder, lost sermons? We've had Spurgeon around. He died in 1892, right? That's right. So uh, we've been studying and hearing about Spurgeon. How can anything be lost of Spurgeon that we haven't already discovered and written, you know, 10,000 pages about? (laughs) Well, that's true. One of the quickest ways to become rich in 1892 was to write a biography on Charles Spurgeon. So there's a small galaxy of them. Uh, Spurgeon, uh, most of what we know of Spurgeon comes from after he moves to London in 1854. Uh, you know, we know about his sermons, we know about his preaching ministry, his social work, that sort of thing. What is much less known is what happened before 1854, uh, when he was a pastor at Waterbeach Chapel in rural Cambridgeshire, uh, when he was an itinerant preacher in the villages surrounding Cambridge. And so in 2011, as I was finishing my PhD at St. Andrews, I took a trip down to Spurgeon's College in London, and I came across 11 handwritten journals. Uh, that contain the sermons from Spurgeon's early ministry before he moved to London. Uh, And so that's uh, the project I've been working on. I've been working uh, to find a publisher, which I've secured this year in B&H Academic. I mean, a million words doesn't look so pretty on a book proposal. (laughs) (laughs) So Robin and Holman, uh, the publisher of these sermons, will be bringing these out as a series, right? That's right. It'll be a 12-volume series. Uh, we're going to start releasing them next January. Uh, and they are basically a, the first critical edition of any of Spurgeon's works. Uh, no one has really investigated Spurgeon, uh, Spurgeon's primary works in a critical way. Uh, and they will add approximately 10% to Spurgeon's overall corpus of literature. Now, I remember reading about Spurgeon. Uh, he spent a great deal of time with his grandfather, I believe, in, in a village called Stamburn. And his grandfather had a great library of Puritan sources and so forth. Uh, 
say a little bit about Spurgeon's own formation, his intellectual formation, uh, his theological uh, direction. Yes. Uh, many people have called Spurgeon the last of the Puritans, um, Puritanum Ultimus. I mean, he was the greatest and the last of the Puritans. In one sense, that's a bit anachronistic. But in another sense, it's quite right on, because Spurgeon was deeply influenced by the Puritan tradition. Uh, he was one of 17 children, and for his father and mother, John and Eliza, they couldn't care for all of the children, the ones that survived. And so Spurgeon was sent to Stamburn to live with James Spurgeon, the grandfather of Spurgeon, who was an independent Congregationalist pastor. And James had a study that was in the attic, and it was always kept dark uh, because they boarded up the windows because of the tax. Uh, window tax. Window yeah. tax, that's right. And yet, in this dark room, young Charles Haddon Spurgeon came across these tomes, many of which we still have in our Spurgeon Library in Kansas City. Uh, they, were, they were the works of people like uh, John Flavel and Jeremiah Burroughs and John Bunyan. Of course, Pilgrim's Progress became, John, uh, became Spurgeon's favorite book. He read it over a hundred times. Uh, and you really have to say, when you step back and look at the overall the theological contours of Spurgeon's ministry, that they were quite puritanical. Uh, he talks about things like uh, grace and sovereignty. Uh, some of these early Puritans uh, had a tremendous influence, um, even ones that we rarely talk about today. Uh, people like um, Thomas Manton and, and some of these uh, kind of lost Puritans. Thomas that, Boston. Thomas Boston, absolutely. Charles Simeon. Mm -hmm. uh, and so one of the things we're doing, one of the things we're discovering in Spurgeon's earliest sermons is that he's relying quite heavily on these early Puritans. In fact, in some sermons, he basically is just regurgitating their own outlines. Now, you and I once took a pilgrimage to England looking at Spurgeon sites. And uh, I want to mention two or three of those and have you describe kind of what happened there and what we saw and observed on that uh, amazing trip that we took together with our friend uh, David Riker from Brazil. Uh, so uh, let's begin with Colchester. Yes. So Colchester played a significant role in Spurgeon's spiritual uh, development. In January of 1850, he was converted in a primitive Methodist church. He was trying to go to um, a church and was lost in a snowstorm. He stumbles into this small primitive Methodist chapel. Uh, as the story is told, uh, the pastor was snowed in. And this shoemaker, or perhaps a tailor, uh, Spurgeon never met him again, but one of those trades took to the pulpit and endeavored to preach a few words about what it means to look to Christ from Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Uh, Spurgeon said that he looked that morning to Christ as though he could have looked his eyes away. Hmm. And he never looked back. Hmm. He never turned to salt, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so from that moment on, uh, he begins... Uh, he begins preaching. He, he has a diary he keeps during this time. And he's trying to understand what it means uh, to be a minister of the gospel. Okay, the River Lark. Yes, so immediately after Spurgeon was converted, uh, he started reading his Bible uh, in a new way. And uh, he becomes convinced uh, that the Baptist tradition um, is the most biblically faithful tradition. And so he decides to become a Baptist. He writes a letter to his mother. And he says, you know, Mother, I, I would like to be baptized uh, and join a Baptist church. To which she responds, you know, I, I prayed, Charles, that God would make you a Christian, but I never prayed that he would make you a Baptist. <laughs> to which uh, the witty young teenager said, well, yes, 
mother, uh, the Lord has answered your prayer with the usual bounty, but is giving you above and beyond all that you could have asked or thought. <laughs> More than you prayed for. More than you prayed for, so Spurgeon yes. Spurgeon becomes a Baptist. He becomes a Baptist. Uh, and he, he's baptized in a little town north of Cambridge called Iselin. And you can still go to the very spot where he was baptized. He said, as soon as I went under the water, all of my anxieties were washed with the fishes into the ocean. Yeah. And God unloosed his tongue in that moment. And so he began to preach. And uh, some of the sermons that you're actually editing and publishing came from this period as a young teenage preacher uh, around Cambridge. I want to mention another thing in Cambridge that happened to him Midsummer Common. Yeah, so if you go to Cambridge, you go to the north of Cambridge, there's this uh, vast park, Midsummer Common. Spurgeon would often walk through there thinking about God, contemplating, uh, thinking about the sermons he had heard at the church. He just joined St. Andrew Street Baptist Chapel. You can still go there today. Uh, and so Spurgeon takes the pastor at Waterbeach Chapel during these years before he moves to London. And one day uh, he, was, uh, he was scheduled to meet uh, Dr. Joseph Angus, who was the principal at Stepney College, and it was sort of like a college interview. And so this was like a theological school for training ministers, right? That, a Baptist school in London at the time. That's exactly right. And uh, Spurgeon was thinking about going to college. His father, John, was putting a lot of pressure on him to go to college. And so he entertained at least an interview. And so he went there, and uh, the, only, the only person Spurgeon ever calls stupid happened to be at this location. <laughs> According to, in Spurgeon's own words, you can read it in the autobiography, a, a stupid parlor girl led Charles into one room and Joseph Angus into another room, and for exactly one hour they, they sat there waiting for the other to show up. And both of them left feeling jilted. Ah. And so Spurgeon departs from that meeting, which is currently um, the Cambridge University Press bookstore. Ah. Uh, I don't think many people know that. Yeah. You can go there today. And he went north, and he went to Midsummer's Common, and he was wrestling with this decision. Uh, you know, just been jilted from his college interview. Do I go to college or do I remain a pastor? And uh, he felt at that moment uh, to go to college was to seek great things for himself. And he reflected on that great verse, seek great things for yourself, says God, seek them not. And so Spurgeon remained as a pastor and never pursued a theological inst institutional degree. In fact, he even rejected uh, the doctorates, the honorary doctorates, America threw his way throughout his ministry. Wow. So he never was, you might say, formally trained in theology, but he was certainly very theologically informed and very well read, wasn't he? Well, he really was. He had a photographic memory. In fact, um, when we give tours of the Spurgeon Library, you're standing there around 6,000 of Spurgeon's books. He originally had 12,000. One biographer said 20,000. And he played a game with his students where he asked a student to pull any book off the shelf and start reading in any place, any paragraph. And by the time Spurgeon, that student had reached the second or third sentence, Spurgeon from memory was reciting everything that student was reading. And so he was a genius. Uh, he taught himself uh, Greek and Hebrew. He spoke a little Latin and, and French. Uh, you just have to say uh, God had uh, ordained his mind for the ministry he had for him. Let's take him to London, New Park Street. Yes. So if you go to London today, you go on the South Bank, uh, very close to the Shakespearean Globe they've constructed a few years ago. You can see the place, not, unfortunately not the church, but the place where Spurgeon's first burgeoning ministry in London unfolded. Uh, it was in one of the worst parts of London to live, south of the river. Uh, it was uh, sort Not of, far from London Bridge, isn't it? Not far at all. If you take a right coming across the, the bridge, you can, uh, you can see the place where the new Park Street Chapel stood. This was a famous chapel. 
This was the pastorate of people like John Rippon and Benjamin Keach and, of course, John Gill, uh, who had a great influence on the Baptist tradition. Uh, and Spurgeon, uh, his first year in 1854 that he was in London, there was a terrible cholera outbreak. Um, I, I forget the quote, but thousands of people died very quickly mm. in the south of the, of the river. It was a problem with the water sanitation. Mm. Because New Park Street Chapel is right there on the banks of the Thames, whenever the Thames would swell, uh, it would often come right into the homes of his congregants. Wow. Spurgeon, um, not caring for his own safety, went house to house, uh, doing several funerals every week, ministering to that new congregation. I want to now mention a few people that Spurgeon knew in his life. Let's start with Susanna. Yes. Um, so young Susanna, she was a city girl, and Charles was a country bumpkin. <laughs> and so uh, in God's kind providence, uh, he, uh, he brought these two together. They started dating uh, at the, the Crystal Palace. In fact, if you go there today, it's in ruins. It, it was bombed and it burned. Uh, but you can go to the Dinosaur Park where the two of these uh, young lovers would court. And uh, Spurgeon gave Susanna a copy of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It was one of his first signs of affection for her. So if any of you guys out there listening are not married and you want a good approach to a godly girl, <laughs> uh, follow Spurgeon's example. Give her Pilgrim's Progress. That's right. And on one occasion, uh, I think this is really when Susanna felt affectionate toward Charles, he leaned over very, scandalous, very scandalously and whispered in her ear, uh, do you pray for him who is to be your husband? And if you read kind of her the autobiography, that's when her heart was instantly bonded to this young preacher from the country. She cleaned him up. She took that polka-dotted handkerchief out of his hand that he would wave. Uh, she dressed him as uh, would be appropriate for the city. And I think at that time, his accent probably started to turn more uh, to a city accent than a country accent. Okay. D.L. Moody. Yes, so D.L. Moody uh, had read Charles Spurgeon uh, before they ever met. In fact, Spurgeon was instrumental in Moody's conversion, I believe. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's interesting when you think about these two figures because Moody, on the one hand, was not a particular Baptist. Uh, he, was, he sided more toward the Arminian strand of, th of thinking, whereas Charles would have been more Calvinistic. And yet, here again, God brings these uh, two figures together. Uh, as the as the story goes, the first time Moody came to London, he saw uh, a billboard with Charles Spurgeon. Sm sm his face was there smoking a cigar, a big black cigar. And uh, to my knowledge, one of the first things Moody said to Charles Spurgeon was, Do you have any idea, Mr. Spurgeon, what you're doing to the temple of God when you smoke a cigar? Well, Spurgeon takes one look at Moody and says, Mr. Moody, do you have any idea what you're doing to the temple of God when you pick up your fork and knife? <laughs> he was rather rotund, wasn't he? I think they were competing. I think Moody was about 400 pounds and maybe uh, won the day on that. Uh, but they were good friends. Uh, in fact, Moody uh, was asked to preach at the tabernacle uh, once Spurgeon's ministry expanded to include um, to, uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And for the rest of their life, they remained good friends. In fact, Susanna gave Moody the last Bible that Spurgeon used and the one he was using in his commentary in the book of Matthew, which he never finished. It's really interesting that Spurgeon would invite Moody to preach at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. He got a lot of criticism for that, didn't he? He did. Spurgeon came to his aid several times. So they were united in their, in their work in the gospel, even though they, as you say rightly, had these differences, theological, temperamental, style, very different, one English, one American. 
Yeah, Spurgeon said of Moody, he's the only man he's ever met who can pronounce the word Mesopotamia in two syllables. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Alexander McLaren. Yes, so at the end of Spurgeon's life, uh, Alexander McLaren really played a, a role in the downgrade controversy. Mm. What is that? Uh, so the downgrade controversy, uh, of course, Spurgeon was involved in many controversies, but at the end of his life, he withdrew fellowship from the Baptist Union. And uh, you get different perspectives on the controversy depending on who you ask. Uh, but for Spurgeon, in his own words, he once wrote a letter to one of his American friends that was published in, in our newspapers, and he said, you know, I want my American friends to understand that you don't know the ins and outs to this controversy, but you have to believe me when I say I could not remain in fellowship with the Baptist Union. And at that time, the Baptist Union uh, had no creed. It had no formal no confession, uh, no confession, and I believe they still don't. And Spurgeon uh, found that it was too lackadaisical a posture to remain in fellowship with people uh, who could potentially be Unitarians. Um, and so what he did, uh, and remember, he had the largest church in Protestant Christendom. He removed uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle uh, uh, Church from that fellowship. And that had tremendous significant implications for his own ministry. Susie said that controversially led to his premature death at the age of 57. And so McLaren was someone who met with Spurgeon in Mentone, France, and really tried to convince him to remain in fellowship with this group, to bear with them and see if they could not turn the ship, uh, so to speak, uh, from within as opposed to walking the plank from without. And McLaren later became one of the early leaders in the Baptist World Alliance, uh, which I know you and I have been involved with as well. Yes, that's correct. So uh, uh, this was a painful episode in Spurgeon's life, is leaving the, the Union, uh, and yet uh, his brother stayed in the Union, didn't he? He did and criticized his, his brother. I think that was part of the problem. Uh, over 80 of his own uh, students at the pastor's college rejected Spurgeon's decision uh, to leave uh, the Union. And so it was a tremendous time of, of, of difficulty, and it's difficult to know. Spurgeon had a, a, a colleague um, who uh, named William Egan, I believe, who uh, was an Essex bumpkin, just like him, a pastor, conservative, who remained in uh, the, the Baptist Union and eventually became its president. Mm. And so one wonders if Spurgeon's massive influence could have uh, helped to uh, solidify a declaration or a confession had he remained within. Yeah. Now, you know, you've done some amazing research. These lost sermons you're bringing out in a new critical edition from Rawman and Holman, your work as the curator of the Spurgeon Library at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City. But I want to ask you about two episodes in Spurgeon's life that you've kind of uncovered, both of which I think show an interesting angle onto him. And first is the fact he never came to America. He was he was wildly popular in America. But also, there were those who rejected him and actually burned his sermons during his own lifetime. Tell us about that. Yes, this is an underexplored area in Spurgeon scholarship. I'm currently uh, hoping to write a book on Spurgeon and, and slavery. But uh, in the American South, Spurgeon, um, he was read widely, but in certain sects, he was not very popular. Uh, they called him, as one newspaper said, the notorious English abolitionist. <laughs> he was against slavery. He was against slavery. He was friends with Frederick uh, Douglass. Many of his sermons were censured. One biographer says that half a million, if not more, I think that's conservative, of his sermons were uh, publicly burned. So if you had been standing in the Montgomery, Alabama jail yard, for instance, on February the 24th, 1860, 
you would have seen the sermons of Spurgeon brought in by the community and publicly thrown uh, into this bonfire they had created. Uh, and this was, I, I think, an epidemic that was more widespread uh, th- than we realize. One, one newspaper even said that if Spurgeon came to Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, uh, the Deep South, uh, he would have been lynched. Mm. Uh, and, and so Spurgeon understood that uh, the rights of, of these Africans, these, uh, these slaves, uh, needed to be represented. And so he fought very hard against uh, the, the American South. So this, this speaks to uh, an aspect of his uh, spirituality and his commitment to reach out, particularly to people who are oppressed, mm. uh, who, who feel persecution, who are on the margins of society. Mm. Uh, you see that in his work with the orphans and with the, with the destitute. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that aspect of his ministry. That's a really good, uh, that's a really good point, because when Spurgeon moves to London, if you've ever seen the, the movie Mary Poppins, for instance... Uh, many of us have, have seen that. You know that the chimney sweepers, in particular, had a terrible life. I believe the average age of the chimney sweeper um, was something like 17 or 18. Mm. Uh, they would die from lung disease and that sort of thing. And so Spurgeon is in London, and he's seeing this great uh, poverty. Remember, he's south of the river. He, his church was not uh, like Westminster or St. Paul's, which was um, uppity north of the river. And so he's, he's in the heart um, uh, of the of the ghetto. Uh, and so he believes the gospel must be incarnated. And so that's one reason he started these 66 parachurch ministries. He had a ministry to the orphans. He starts two orphanages. He had a ministry uh, even to his own students at the pastor's college. He would underwrite the entire cost of their education. Um, a slave by the name of Thomas L. Johnson from Virginia um, was completely financed his education. His education was completely financed by Charles Spurgeon. For the rest of his life, Spurgeon sent him money to Africa as he was a missionary there. Mm. And he had gone to Spurgeon's College. He would graduated, right, from Spurgeon's College. That's exactly right. And at the end of his life, he wrote a book called 28 Years a Slave. And you can read how Spurgeon um, personally discipled and mentored him. Now, you've just recently written an interesting little article for the Desiring God uh, website. Yes. Uh, Tell us about that. It's called Raising Spurgeon from the Dead. What's that about? (laughs) On October the 21st, uh, 1928, um, if I might be so bold to say, the spirit of Charles Spurgeon was raised from the dead. (laughs) Uh, At least that's what the clairvoyant in the room had claimed. Uh, So there was a series of seances uh, in the late uh, 1920s and early uh, 1930s. This was a time when people put a lot of uh, confidence in mediums and uh, spiritual readers and things like that. Yes, there was a great movement of spiritualism. And uh, under the guidance of a Canadian surgeon by the name of Dr. Glenn Hamilton, uh, the spirit of Charles Spurgeon appeared. And he even requested uh, a hymn to be sung by this little seance. Uh, The fourth stanza of William Cooper's famous hymn, There's a Fountain Filled with Blood. Uh, This is how it goes. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wound supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And three years later he returned his spirit according to the clairvoyant. Uh, and he exegeted from beyond the grave Isaiah 52.10. He preached a sermon about what it means to have a revival and spiritual awakening. Uh, and so in a, blo- in a dark room on, on April the 26th, 1931, a medium who was entranced by the spirit of Spurgeon, so, so she claimed, blindly scribbled the following words. Um, the main instrumental cause of a great revival must be the bold, faithful, fearless preaching of the truth of the divine spirit from the Lord our God. 
Now, as it turns out, um, Spurgeon had preached those same words in, in 1858 in a sermon uh, on revival called the Great Revival. Uh, and so, but I think it's interesting uh, because in some ways, of course, Spurgeon's spirit will one day be raised from the dead, not by a medium um, or a spiritualist, but by the Holy Spirit, um, Paul promises in 1 Corinthians. But it is interesting because in a way, Spurgeon has kind of come back from the dead. Uh, there are, in 2011, there were only two, possibly three PhDs in the world being written on Charles Spurgeon. Uh, in the next five years, I anticipate uh, more than 50. Wow. And in large part due to what we're doing at Midwestern uh, Baptist Theological Institute with the Spurgeon Library, uh, trying to see Spurgeon th- uh, through critical lenses. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, we're almost out of time, um, uh, Christian. Is there anything else you want to say about Spurgeon we haven't covered well, there's a lot I'd like to say about Spurgeon. <laughs> um, you know, there's that little verse in Hebrews 11, I think it's verse 4. Abel, uh, even though he is dead, uh, yet he speaks uh, from the grave. And, you know, as my pilgrimage has led me from Birmingham to St. Andrews in Scotland, to Oklahoma, and now to Kansas City, uh, you know, it's so interesting to see uh, that, that God, is, um, God is still speaking through Charles Spurgeon. We believe that Spurgeon still has something to say. He once said at the end of his life, I would cast my shadow into the future if I could. And, uh, and, and so in, in some ways, I think his shadow has spilled deeply into our own age. And my ambition and my heartbeat is to not only see the shadow, but to look beyond Spurgeon to see the sun that caused the shadow. That's great. Now, uh, Helmut Thielicke was a very fine uh, German pastor, theologian, who wrote a book about Spurgeon, Encounter with Spurgeon. And he has something like that, doesn't he, to say about Spurgeon? He does. He said that bush from old London still burns and shows no sign of being consumed. That's great. I want to close this discussion with you by reading uh, what is, I think, my favorite quotation from all of Spurgeon. And you can maybe give a little comment upon what it means about Spurgeon's spirituality and what he can say to us today. This is actually from a sermon preached in 1859. So he'd been in London at that time how many years? So he was there in 54 is when he moved to London. So five years on, he preaches this sermon um, called The Inexhaustible Barrel. And in that sermon, he makes this statement. Now, if God saves us, it will be a trying matter. All the way to heaven, we shall only get there by the skin of our teeth. We shall not go to heaven sailing along with sails swelling to the breeze like seabirds with their white wings. But we shall proceed full often with sails rent to ribbons, with masts creaking and the ship's pumps at work both by night and day. We shall reach the city at the shutting of the gate, but not an hour before. And I was uh, speaking on Spurgeon in, in a little town in Arkansas, and this quote came up. And uh, I was always under the impression that Spurgeon died early, the age of uh, 57. And uh, this quote is a reminder that Spurgeon accomplished everything God had for him to accomplish. Uh, we will not uh, reach heaven with, um, uh, we shall not go to heaven sailing along the sails, swelling to the breeze. We shall get there by the skin of our teeth. And Spurgeon did get to heaven by the skin uh, of his teeth and the skin off his back. Uh, he, as you, as you may know, was 
constantly depressed. He almost quit the ministry in his early 20s when the Surrey Garden Music Hall collapsed and seven people were murdered. Uh, he suffered greatly from uh, what some psychiatrists are calling bipolar disease. Uh, his life was marked by highs and lows. Um, his ministry peaked and plummeted. Uh, and so Spurgeon understood that his pilgrimage, to use John Bunyan's um, allegory, uh, it, it, would, it would contain some valleys of the shadows of death, and it would contain some doubting castles. Uh, but in the end, uh, Spurgeon did reach the celestial city, and he did so with the confidence uh, that God would not only vindicate him in the future, uh, but he would give him the strength he needed to get through at the very hour. Well, my guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Christian George. He is the curator of the Charles Haddon Spurgeon Library and Assistant Professor of Historical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. He's a Spurgeon scholar. He's bringing out the lost sermons of C.H. Spurgeon from Robin and Holman. Thank you, Christian, for this wonderful conversation about one of the greats of all time. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.